Welcome. Today we have a spectacular show for you. It is one of our thought leader shows and today we have Professor Jonah Berger. He is Professor of Marketing at Wharton Business School and we are so honored to have him. He is a best-selling author of three books. We're going to focus on Catalyst, which is his, least, his most recent book today and it is fabulous. I have read all of them and that one is by far the best. I am so pleased to have him here today and just Fasten your seatbelts, you're gonna have a great time. I'm Lorraine Siegel. I'm the founder, chair, and CEO of the Exceptional Women Awardees Foundation, known as EWA. We started this foundation in order to enable high-level, high-potential women to rise, to meet their dreams, to enable their careers. Why? Because all throughout my career, I never had a mentor. I never had a coach. And throughout my early years as a lawyer, then as an entrepreneur and a CEO of multiple businesses, and even as a board director, I did not have a mentor. And I wanted to be sure that women who walk the road less traveled like myself, exceptional women, would have a network of women leaders to support and advise them for the rest of their lives. And that's exactly what we've done. So normally we have a monthly show for our EWA leaders. And then every now and then we are able to show our amazing thought leaders who have come to us. Sally Helgerson was the first one. And now we have Jonah Berger. So let's get right to it. Jonah, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it is such a pleasure. I listened to Catalyst on Audible, actually, and almost drove into a tree because I was listening to every word and it was absolutely compelling. But let's go back a little earlier. You were a child prodigy and certainly you've achieved so much in your very, very young life. So would you give us a little bit of background of what happened during your early years, your education, and then how you got to be a professor at Wharton School? I, I'm not sure I can uh, claim to be a child prodigy, um, but I uh, certainly um, uh, had a lot of uh, help and assistance and mentorship growing up. Um, you know, I uh, loved math, science, and computer science. I went to both a high school and a junior high school that uh, focused in those areas. I thought I would be an environmental engineer, uh, went to college, uh, took a course uh, on science, technology, and society. Uh, how uh, the way we read a reading about how the way we build buildings shapes the way we read our uh, graze our children. So the idea being when we live in small houses, uh, kids can play out front and we can see them. Uh, but when we live in tall buildings, we don't let our kids play out front anymore because we can't see them. That changes uh, the social dynamic in, in the neighborhood. I thought this sort of stuff was fascinating. I asked the professor what I should read more about. Uh, they suggested social psychology and, and that kind of kicked off a, a journey for me. Um, started studying social psychology. Uh, I read a book many of us read uh, in the early 2000s called The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, got me interested in why things catch on. Uh, there was a professor at Stanford at the time uh, who had just joined named Chip Heath, uh, who many of us know for his famous books, Made to Stick and Decisive and so on. I started doing research with him about rumors and urban legends, uh, why things catch on, and the rest is kind of history. I ended up doing a PhD um, uh, in uh, marketing at Stanford, uh, trying to study why things catch on. We often see products, ideas, and behaviors uh, become popular, but we don't often understand why. And I thought it'd be really neat to apply the same rigorous tools of experimentation and statistics and data analysis that we use in the hard sciences that I had loved growing up uh, to the social sciences, to human behavior, 
to why we do the things that we do um, and why that leads some people to succeed uh, more than others. And so it's been uh, great to apply these tools. I've been at Wharton now for 15 years uh, doing all sorts of research and writing a range of books uh, on these sorts of topics. It's been great to learn more about how modern marketing is done in today's day and age and help leaders from a variety of organizations solve all sorts of problems and help products, services, and ideas catch on. Fabulous, Jonah. You know, amongst our EWA, we have a number of women who have been your students at Wharton in the earlier part of their careers. And of course, uh, they rave about it. I think your class was actually called Contagious, which is one of your uh, books, which is not the one we're going to talk about today, but it is also very, very interesting. So in Catalyst, you talk about something that all of us want to know how to do, and that is how to change somebody's mind. And what most of us do is we kind of tell them the same thing over and over and hope for a different result. Give us a little bit of background on how you got to the insights that you explained so beautifully in that book. Yeah, and thank you for the kind words about the book, by the way, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, so as you mentioned, my first book was called Contagious. Uh, it came out a number of years ago and it kind of changed my life a little bit. But before that book, I was uh, mostly uh, just a straight academic. I did teaching and, and research and once in a while would talk to a company or an organization. Uh, but that book came out um, and I uh, did a little bit better than I expected. Um, it's now out in over half a million copies uh, in 35 languages around the world. And I got to work with all sorts of companies and organizations, uh, everything from big Fortune 500 like the Googles and Nikes and Apples uh, of the world to, to small startups. Um, and what I soon realized is everyone in some way, shape or form had the same problem, which is they all had something they wanted to change, right? The, the folks in marketing and sales, they wanted to change a customer or a client's mind. They wanted to get them to adopt a new product or, or change and adopt a new service. Leaders wanted to transform organizations. Employees wanted to change their bosses and colleagues' minds. Startups wanted to change industries. And, and nonprofits wanted to change the world. But for all these different groups, just as you nicely said, they found change really hard. They were often doing some version of pushing, pressuring, cajoling, adding more facts, more figures, more reasons, and nothing would budge. And so I started wondering, well, could there be a better way to change minds uh, and, and drive action? And, and that's really where the journey of the book started. I started diving into the literature. I started interviewing, whether it's top performing salespeople or great consultants, uh, startup founders, and also some more unusual individuals uh, like hostage negotiators or substance abuse counselors, folks that deal with change in a, a variety of situations that are often more difficult than what we face uh, on a daily basis. And what I found was quite interesting. Uh, all these people were taking a different approach to change. They weren't pushing, right? Often when we think about change, we think about some version of pushing. If I just pressure, if I control, if I push a little harder, people will change. But these folks weren't pushing because what they realize is when we push harder, what often happens? Well, people push back. They come up with all the reasons why they shouldn't do what we want. They dig in their heels and they resist. And so what these folks were doing was quite interesting. Rather than pushing harder, they were doing the exact opposite. Rather than trying to figure out, well, what could they do to get someone to change? Instead, they were saying, well, why hasn't that person changed already? What's stopping them? What are the barriers or obstacles that are getting in the way? And how can I mitigate them? And, and that's why I call this book The Catalyst, right? Uh, we think about catalysts in the social world as just change agents, but in chemistry, where the word catalysts come from, they have a very specific meaning. Catalysts are a special set of substances that enable change to happen faster and easier. But it's not just they make change easier, they do it a very unusual way. Usually change in chemistry is about increasing the temperature or increasing the pressure, but that's not what catalysts do. They don't require more energy. They make the same amount of change with less energy. 
not more. They figure out an alternate path by removing those barriers or obstacles. And so to me, the same thing is really possible and powerful in the social world, right? Rather than pushing people, figuring out what, what's stopping them. What are those barriers or obstacles that are getting in the way and how by mitigating them, can we make all sorts of change more likely? So Jonah, last year is when I bought your book. And as I said, I listened to it on Audible and it was so pertinent because we were in an election year and everybody was trying to change everybody's point of view. Can you give us a few beats on that and how the catalyst of idea that you have works in the political arena? And by the way, EWA is completely non-political, but it is so interesting to see the forces and the money and the people and the power that has gone into changing political points of view. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, so... Uh so we don't get too far into politics. So I'm happy to get a little bit into politics. Let's take something that is political in nature, but, but shouldn't be, which is COVID, right? The coronavirus, vaccines, wearing masks. You know, if you look at what public health organizations, governmental organizations, what everyone has tried to do is tell people what to do. Wear a mask, go get vaccinated, don't do this, do that. And you see a lot of people, just as we talked about, pushing back. Right. Rather than going along, pushing back. And, and, and so I think if we, if we really look at it, and I, I wrote a, an HBR piece uh, early on in the pandemic exactly about this, we need to identify the barriers to change uh, and mitigate them. And it turns out across situations, whether we're trying to change minds in the political arena, whether we're trying to get people to wear a mask, whether we're trying to get people to buy a product or use a service or transform the entire way an organization does business, it turns out the same five barriers come up uh, again uh, and again. Uh, whether I was talking to hash negotiators, whether I was talking to parenting experts, whether I was talking to consultants, the same stuff kept coming up. It might be called different things in different spaces, but underneath the core psychology, the core underlying barriers to change were very much the same. And, and so I put them in a framework uh, in the catalyst called the REDUCE framework, and that stands for reactants. Uh, it's the first R. Uh, e is for endowment. D is distance, U is for uncertainty, uh, and the CE is for corroborating evidence. And each of these barriers often gets uh, in the way. And so the key question is, well, how can we first identify them, figure out which of the five or which of the multiple of the five are happening in the case we're interested in and how to mitigate them? So let's take, you talked about politics and I mentioned vaccines. Let's use those as an example, right? Often when we push people, people push back. Why? because they have what's called psychological reactants. People like to feel freedom uh, and in control. They wanna feel like they're in the driver's seat of their life. Why do I make the choices I make? Why do I buy the products I buy, the services I use? Why do I support a certain initiative at the office or decide to get vaccinated? I do things like that because I want to. But unfortunately, when someone else tells me what to do, when someone else impinges on my ability to make that choice, now suddenly it's not clear to me whether I'm in charge or whether someone else is. And as soon as I feel like someone else is in charge, I'm less interested in doing that thing. And any of you who have a, a three-year-old at home, I, I have, happen to have a three-year-old, you're probably well familiar with this idea, but you know, you, you tell your kid, as I was uh, doing tonight, very, very nice young man, but you tell him to eat his dinner and he says no. You tell him to put his pajama bottoms on and he says no, right? When people feel like someone else is telling them what to do, whether that is to get a vaccine or put on your pajama bottoms, they often push back. Right? Uh, and so essentially people have an ingrained anti-persuasion radar. It's almost like a missile defense system or a spidey sense that goes off when they feel like someone's trying to persuade them. 
They engage in a series of countermeasures to avoid or, or ignore or, or avoid being changed. Uh, you can think about this easily when uh, you get pitched by a salesperson, right? We all know that feeling. We hang up the phone, we delete the email, or an ad comes on the television, we look the other way. Even worse, though, is counter-arguing. And this is what happens in a lot of meetings that we present at. Sure, the audience seems like they're listening, and sure, they're shaking their head yes, but they're really sitting there and thinking about all the reasons why what we're suggesting is a bad idea, why it won't work, why it's too expensive, why it's not going to integrate with the existing systems, why it's unfeasible, right? Almost like a high school debate team. They're poking and prodding the argument till it comes crumbling down. And so the big challenge for us as catalysts, as change agents, is to stop pressuring people, right? Stop pushing people, uh, stop trying to persuade people and get them to persuade themselves. Stop trying to sell people and get them to buy in. And so I'm happy to talk about a couple of the solutions, uh, both as they relate to politics or COVID or anything else. But I think the core insight to reducing reactants is that, right? Rather than pushing people, allowing for agency, making them feel freedom and in control, making them feel like they're participants in the process. I talk about five or six ways to do this in the book, and I'm happy to talk about a couple here, but make them feel like they're part of the process. The more they feel like it's theirs, the less likely they are to push back. So in the old days, we'd call that buy-in. And I think that that's obviously a very, very important part of learning how to influence is also learning how to do persuasion in a way that's not uh, telling people the same thing over and over. I'd love to hear just a couple of solutions that you have. I know we don't have time to do all of them, but why don't you choose one or two? Because I know yeah. everybody wants to have the answer. <laughs> you know, I can't tell you uh, how many of these type of interviews I do where someone says, look, look, I know there are five principles in the book. Just tell me one thing. They'll, they'll boil it down to one. And unfortunately, there isn't just one. But, but I'll give you an example. I'll give you a couple examples. One very simple one. Let's go back to that meeting. We're making a presentation. We're telling people, I think that we should do this. This is what I think, what course of action we should take. I think we should do X. And as I mentioned, the audience sitting there, they're shaking their head yes, but really they're thinking about all the reasons why X is a bad idea. And so what great catalysts do, what great change agents do, is they provide what I'll call a menu. Rather than giving the audience one option, they give them multiple, X or Y. This one, this one, or something else. And what that does is it subtly shifts the role of the listener. Rather than sitting there and thinking about all the reasons why they don't like what you're suggesting, instead you've given them a different job. Now their job is which one of the multiple things you suggested they like best. And because they're focused on what they like best, they're much more likely to pick one at the end of that conversation. Because what you've done is you've provided a limited set of options, a menu in a sense, and you've allowed them to choose from the choice set. You're not forcing them one way or another, right? You're guiding the journey. It's guided choice. You're not saying do whatever you want. And you're not saying do what I want. You're saying, well, which of these things do you think is best? And because they're focused on what they like, which they're more than happy to do, they're much more likely to go along with one of those options uh, at, at the end. And so I love this idea of providing a menu. Another one is, is called ask, don't tell. Right? So often when we're trying to convince people, change minds, drive action, we tell people what we think we want them to do. Right? We make statements. And as we talked about, people push back against those statements. But asking questions is a much more effective strategy. I was talking to a startup founder. She was trying to get her team to put in long hours. It was right around uh, launch of a new version of their product, trying to get people to put in long hours. And there was a lot of pushback. We don't want to do it. Um, you know, we've got other things going on. No thanks. And so instead, she tried a different strategy. She called a meeting and she said, first, hey, what kind of company do you want to be? A good company or a great company? We, we all know how everyone answers that question, right? That's an easy one. But then she said, OK, well, great. We want to be a great company. How do we get there? What do you guys think we should do? And she had a discussion 
right? And people came up with different ideas. And at the end of the meeting, she said, great, I think we're going to do these two or three things based on what you suggested. And what questions do is really, really clever. First, they ask people for their opinion, which people are more than happy to give you, right? But because they're focused on their opinion, because they're focused on what they like, they're not pushing back, they're providing solutions, which gives you as a leader, which gives you as a salesperson, which gives you as a consultant, much more information to help them reach a conclusion that they're going to be happy with. But second, in addition to collecting that information, what questions also do, and giving answers to those questions, is encourages the audience to commit to the conclusion. Right? If you've asked people, well, how can we become a great company? And they say, okay, well, I think we need to do this. And you say, great, we're going to do this. It's much harder for them to say no, because they came up with it in the first place. Right? Because it was their idea, because they feel like they've participated in that process, they're much less likely to push back uh, against the solution. Now, to be clear, it's not about asking any question. Because she could have asked, well, hey, do you guys like working late? And they would have said no. Again, it's about asking questions. It's about using information. It's about giving options to guide but not prescribe the journey, right? Giving some guardrails that encourage people to move in a certain direction, but allowing them to participate in the process enough that they feel like it's theirs. And so they're more comfortable going along with, with the conclusion. That makes so much sense. Joan, is this something that's particular to the American culture? I know that your books have sold worldwide and there are many cultures in the world where when somebody is told to do something, they do it. That's not <laughs> our way. We're very individualistic. How does this apply in other global cultures? Yeah, that's, that is a fantastic question. And I think you're very right that in our American individualistic uh, culture where, you know, children are raised to believe that everyone is a unique and special snowflake, um, they're very much, uh, reactance is certainly prevalent here. Um, but let me tell you, no one likes being told what to do. Right? Everyone likes to feel like they have some role uh, in, in the process. Sure, in other cultures and other situations, people are more likely to go along. Sure, if the government says I have to wear a mask or the government mandates that I do something in particular, I may go along and do it. But it doesn't mean that I'm happy about doing it. And that doesn't mean that later, if given the chance to do something else, I won't do that something else. And so I think what's important to remember is, is cross-culturally, people like to feel like they've participated. While that, that desire to stand out, that desire to do something different from everybody else is certainly very American, um, that desire to participate in a process is something that's important uh, everywhere. And so people always appreciate being asked for their feedback. Even if they're more willing to go along, the more they feel like they've played a role in that process, the they're happier they're gonna be. I was working with a client a couple weeks ago and talking about some of these ideas and someone said, wow, you know, it's so funny. It, it feels sometimes like some people, uh, rather than being your idea, they like to feel like it was their idea. They were talking about managing up and sort of talking to bosses and they were saying, isn't it funny how some bosses like feeling something was their idea? And I kind of said, well, you know, I agree with you, except for one word you said, which is some, right? Everyone likes feeling something was, was their idea. The more they feel it's theirs, the more ownership they feel over it, the more likely they're going to go along. And so the more you can give someone that ownership, the more you can allow for autonomy, allow them to participate, give them that freedom to, to be part of the process, the more excited they are going to be about the outcome. I love that. There are so many questions in LinkedIn. You cannot imagine, Jonah. So we're going to say just one or two uh, because I want to make sure our audience knows that we appreciate that they have actually been asking us questions. So it'll come up on the screen. Um, 
as somebody just said, I agreed. I'm wondering about uh, cultural differences in the need for freedom and agency and the pushback factor. So I think this was probably in an answer to someone else who would ask a question, but uh, what about the need for freedom and agency and the pushback factor? We used to call it the not invented hit syndrome in the old days. So how do you feel we should deal with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think what we just talked about is, is basically an answer to that question, right? The, the ability to either give someone choice uh, or, or ask a question that allows them to answer it. I'll, I'll give you one more example that I think is, is really illustrative. Um, there's an organization in Thailand called the Thai Health Promotion Foundation. And so this is from a very different country in, in case you guys are saying, oh, it applies in the U.S. but not other places. So uh, they're trying to get people to quit smoking. Uh, they're a quit line. People call. They're supposed to quit smoking. Uh, but people aren't calling. Uh, and so they're trying to figure out, well, look, what, what do we do? And so they're giving out all this information. It's not working. So they try something different. They go up to people on the street who are smoking and they ask them for a light. Uh, and this is something smokers are asked all the time, right? Can I have a light? Smokers always say yes. Except this time the smokers say no. And smokers say no because the person who asked is a 10-year-old child. It's a little boy or a little girl with pigtails or a shirt with a monkey face on it saying, can I have a light? And the smokers all say, no, of, of course not. I'm not going to give you a light. You're too young. You should go run and play. Smoking will give you lung disease and emphysema. You know, don't you want to do sports? Smoking's bad for you. It'll ruin your health. Don't do it. Um, all these different things, right? Uh, and so, no, I'm not going to help you. And so at the end, the kid says, okay. And the kid walks away. But before they do, they hire, uh, hand them a little slip of paper, the smokers. And the smokers unfurl that paper. And on it, it says, you worry about me, but not yourself. Think about calling this quit line. And uh, there are videos of this online. I, I highly suggest checking it out. They're also on my website. If you're listening, go to uh, my website. is jonaberger.com. You can go to the Catalyst page. You'll see the videos there. Hugely powerful videos. This campaign is very successful. So 40% increase in calls to the quit line. Uh, videos of these uh, campaign goes viral on the web. Millions of views. Uh, but most interesting is why it works. Right? So what they realized very simply is information wasn't the problem. Smokers already know all the downsides to smoking. They can list them. like They're almost like a doctor in their knowledge uh, of the downsides of smoking. And so sometimes the problem is information. Sometimes if the issue is people don't have enough information, then the barrier is information, and information can solve an information problem. But let me tell you, most of the time that we think information is the barrier, it's not. We're so focused on ourselves and what we want that we assume if we just give people more information, they'll see things our way. We need to start thinking more about them. Right? We need to understand their problem and only then think about providing the solution. When you go to a, a doctor's office, for example, the doctor doesn't start by saying, let me put a cast on your leg. The, the doctor starts by saying, well, tell me about the problem and I'll prescribe a solution. And so for the Thai health folks, they realize, look, the problem's not information. The problem is smokers don't like being told what to do. So what they did instead is they did what's called highlighting a gap. People love to feel like their attitudes and their actions are in line, right? If, if I say I care about the environment, I better recycle. If I say I care about a certain sports team, I better watch their games. Um, but when those two are out of whack, my attitudes and my actions don't line up, uh, cognitive dissonance happens, and we do work to resolve that dissonance. we got to change our attitudes and our actions. And that's exactly what happened with the smokers. They're sitting there going, well, I told this kid not to smoke, but I'm smoking. And someone just pointed out that those two don't match up. I've got to fix it. What am I going to do about it? And they've got two options. They can either stop, uh, tell the kid to smoke, which they're not going to do, or they can stop smoking themselves, which is what 40% of them did, right? And we can see the same idea in a host of situations. 
right? Uh, imagine uh, you're a leader. I was talking to uh, someone in one of my exec ed sessions who brought this example up, and she said, you know, have a colleague who's got an old project, old initiative that they're stuck on. They don't want to kill, right? They've got that status quo bias. They don't want to budge. They won't kill it. Um, and so I kept telling them to try to kill it, but they weren't listening. So I ended up saying, well, hey, would you recommend someone else start a project like this? You know, hey, there's someone in another branch of the company. They're thinking about doing something similar. Given what we know now, would you recommend starting something like this? And uh, her colleague said, no, I, no, I wouldn't recommend starting something like this. And she said, okay, well, then why are we still doing it? Right? Not telling him, hey, we've got to kill this project. Because if, if, particularly if it's someone's baby and you say, we're going to kill this project, then you say, no, 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 they're going to push back. Instead, point out, well, if they wouldn't recommend it to someone else, why are they still doing it, right? If you think about COVID and mask wearing, for example, rather than telling people to wear a mask, why don't you say, well, hold on. Imagine your elderly parent or grandparent was around. Imagine your young kids or grandkids were around. Would you want other people around them to wear a mask? Would you want other people around them to be vaccinated? Well, if you do, why aren't you wearing a mask yourself? Don't tell them what to do. Highlight that gap and encourage them to do the work to resolve it. Quick question. What are you trending now? What are you tracking now? Uh, you have another book, I'm sure, in development. We just have two minutes left. Uh, what, uh, what I will say is I'm doing a lot of work on what's called natural language processing or extracting behavioral insight from textual data. So we use language all the time. You and I are having a conversation. We're using words. Um, when someone might send an email later, they're using words. We make a presentation. We're using language. We uh, have customer service calls. They're using language. We make written information that we send to employees or clients using written language. How do the words we use make us more or less effective? How does what we say affect whether or not we get our way? Uh, and how by understanding the words that we are using that are working and not, can we be more effective? And so we're doing dozens of projects in this space, looking at everything from how written content affects whether people read it or not, uh, looking at how the uh, lyrics of songs affect their success, how the scripts of movies affect their success, how language leaders use make uh, uh, employees more or less likely to listen, a range of things around uh, language and, and words, uh, lots of exciting uh, insights and, and look forward to talking about them at a, another date. Yep, we'll bring you on. We have one minute left until uh, we have to leave, but uh, I need to know from you quickly, how have you adapted to teaching during COVID? <laughs> uh, as, as well as I can, I would say. Um, so, you know, I, I think what's the most interesting uh, about the moment that we're in is we all like everyone hates change, right? We all have this thing called the status quo bias. I talk about it a lot in the catalyst. Um, none of us like change, but we've all been forced to change. And the interesting thing is when we're no longer forced to change, when we're given the option of going back, which things will we go back to and not? So with teaching, for example, we've all been forced, all the Wharton faculty have been forced to teach online. We've learned a lot from that process. And what we've realized is, yes, in-person teaching is great for certain things, but online may actually be better for other things. And so it's really not about whether we go all back to in-person or stick all online, which we, which we won't do, but really taking the opportunity to learn from the pandemic and say, well, what did we learn about some of the things we had to do? And how can we deploy those things more effectively and in all areas of our life? Jonah, you are an amazing individual. You are brilliant, you're insightful, and you're so eloquent. And I wish we had two or three hours with you as your students do, but hopefully you'll come back and join us another time. Thank you so much for your insight and for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And we have some other amazing leaders to share with you on Monday of next week, March the 8th, we will feature some of our EWAs, Michelle 
Westfort, who is the Chief University Officer of Instride, a fast-growing technology company, and Mary Zappone. Mary is the CEO of Brace Manufacturing. They are going to discuss the challenges of upskilling. That is a big problem that faces all of us in the business world and even in the non-business world today. Did you know that more than one billion jobs, one billion jobs, which is almost one third of all jobs worldwide, are likely to be transformed in the next decade? And in 2022, which is just around the corner, 40% of the core skills that are required to perform the existing jobs are going to shift. So join us for the answers on Monday, March the 8th. It's going to be a fabulous show. And as always, I'm going to leave you with a challenge today. My email is going to come up on the screen. I want you to send us your answers. How successful have you been in influencing others to think differently? Thank you again to Professor Jonah Berger. What a fabulous show. Wonderful having you with us. I'm sorry we didn't get to your questions, but join us again on Monday. Bye, everybody.